This evening I'd like to go back to some of the basics, um, fundamentals of the of Dharma teachings, um, both for those who are in the middle of their retreat and those of you who have come for this evening, and as a reminder of how to live wisely in our practice. It is true today, this Monday evening, that we are almost up to the summer solstice. It's almost the longest day and the shortest night of the year. Another day or so. This is our summer solstice, Monday night anyway. And it's amazing if you reflect about it. I mean, you see how light it is and how beautiful the light is of summer. And to see that and sense the changing of seasons, it's about to shift again and go back over toward the days becoming shorter and shorter and the nights becoming longer. And that movement is, if you will, the music of the spheres. If you've ever, probably all of you at some time or other, have seen an eclipse, whether it's an eclipse of the sun, which is really magnificent, or an eclipse of the moon, where you watch the earth's shadow go across the face of the moon, it's still pretty amazing, because there's that sense as you watch the eclipse that there are these huge balls, these giant spheres of stone, and a little bit of life on this one, just on the surface of it, right? These huge balls of stone and fire that are dancing, that are moving, and they pass one another very slowly, and you can see that movement. It's not just, you know, what they taught in elementary school science class. You watch the earth move across the face of the moon, or the moon across the orb of the sun. If you go out on a summer night and look at the stars, particularly if you do it the way I like to do, which is to lie down in the grass and look up when it's clear. But instead of looking up, if you let yourself imagine that actually you're looking down into space because we're held onto the earth by this magnetism, this thing we call gravity, and there isn't a top or bottom, there's just us being stuck on here. And if you lie there and look into space, and sense that you're looking down into the stars, which is how it is. You see this band of stars of the Milky Way and the wheeling galaxies, and perhaps you can sense that we live on this planet that orbits a medium yellow star that's about two-thirds of the way out of one of the spiral arms of our Milky Way galaxy that rotates every 10 million years or so, like a big Ferris wheel. We get the ride around some form or other. And this is one of some billions of stars in the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is one of 10 billion galaxies that we've seen so far, and there's billions beyond that. And of course, Things seem important when you're driving over the Bay Bridge or, you know, going to work or going home and so forth, but I wonder, you know, in the end. The, I remember this man, Houston Smith, who was at MIT when he went to visit the Dalai Lama first in the 1950s, and the Dalai Lama asked him all about the theories of the universe because he's interested in science. And 
Houston told him about the Big Bang Theory and then asked the Dalai Lama, is there anything like that in Buddhism, this kind of the beginnings of the universe? And the Dalai Lama said, yes, there was, as a matter of fact, but it was a little more than that. He said it probably could be best expressed as the bang, bang, bang theory. That is, that there are universes that arise, galaxies, incredible um, manifestation of all things, and then the cycle where they disappear, and then they reappear again. So that we can see that if we look. The single basic law of life that's really obvious in this change of seasons is the law of expansion and contraction, of change. We don't control this, we are it, we are part of it. So the Buddha said quite simply that everything that is born or created or comes into existence dissolves, ends, dies, and then is recreated in another form. Tribe follows tribe, nation follows nation. It is the order of nature, says Chief Seattle. And so life, what we see, this capacity to be conscious and aware, is all a process of expansion and contraction. So as you sit and meditate and you feel your breath and notice it more deeply, you notice there are short breaths and long breaths and cooler or warmer parts of the breath, faster breaths and the breath stop. It's all a changing process of breathing, never exactly the same. Or you pay attention to your body just to stop for a minute and sense your own human body as we have in the sitting just now. And what seems solid, if you feel carefully, there's no arm or leg or back or head what there is, is vibration, tingling, areas of pressure, hot, cold, sparkling, pinpricks, pain, pleasure. And the body, the more deeply you feel into it, is moving, is alive, is pulsing. That's our direct experience. It's also, if you look at it from the outside, a tube with arms and legs that we kind of um, move about and put dead plants and animals into one end of and excrete them at the other end. Um, and the tube is in constant expansion and contraction. And so is our cerebrospinal fluid, which with the brain case and so forth, that fluid breathes and moves and our heart expands and contracts. You feel your heart every moment, pumping, expansion and contraction, just like the rest of the body. And even on a cellular level, when you get there, there's always this movement of expansion, change, and contraction. The more deeply we feel, the more we feel the ever-flowing change of life. As Swami Satchitananda wrote, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. What else expands and contracts as you pay attention in the practice of mindfulness? Your heart does. It opens and it closes, have you noticed? And through all the feelings, it closes in fear or pain or sorrow. It armors itself, it contracts. And then it opens 
and curiosity, love, excitement, compassion. And each of these, if you pay attention, has contains its opposite, like hot and cold, or anger and love, or fear, and that willingness to learn or to open. Doubt and knowing, they play back and forth. What expands maybe even more than that, you only have to sit for a few minutes, is your mind. Sometimes it's open, relaxed, easy, expansive. Other times it's rigid or tight or busy or structured or defined. And the mind goes through all these changes. But not just us, the seasons. Spring turning to summer, to autumn, to winter, night and day. The stock market fell 30 points today, right? War and peace, the cycles of the moon, menstrual cycles, the school term, which is recently out. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck the seeds of that which is planted. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And it goes on. The poetry of Ecclesiastes, the poetry of wisdom. There are eight worldly winds, the Buddha said, that constantly change, pleasure and pain. Anybody not have this? Gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And things are always changing in this, in our relationships, with money, with work, with traffic. What doesn't change? This law of change is the meat and potatoes of spiritual practice. Or for some of you, it's the brown rice and vegetables of spiritual (laughs) practice, however you want to think of it. It's the, it's the root of our direct experience of life. Now, maybe you think it's not supposed to be that way. Lama Yeshe, wonderful Tibetan teacher, and wise man and kind of an inspiration, started monasteries all around the world before he died a few years ago was put in the hospital for a heart attack and taken to the intensive care. He said, to safeguard my precious life, I placed it in intensive care in the hands of these foreign doctors. Never have I known such sufferings as I endured. Unending medicines, injections, waking day and night. Um, He was in the ICU with with a heart attack for, for weeks. He said, I became unable to maintain mindfulness or balance or even do the simplest prayers and commitments. After 41 days, my body was like the Lord of a cemetery, my mind like an anti-God, and my speech like the barkings of an old mad dog. That's how difficult it was. Then he goes on. He wrote this letter to some Dharma friends. He said, so practice now while you have a chance because you don't know how things will change. And this is a very wise and enlightened teacher. So you think, well, it's not supposed to happen. Things aren't supposed to change. Not me. I'm not going to grow old or 
die or whatever. But our life is cycles, in and out, times of stillness, times of activity. Next week, my grandson is coming to visit. It's wonderful. I'm a grandparent. I also just got my first reading glasses. <laughs> my wife has had them for a couple of years. She's sort of elbowing me, saying, when are you going to get yours? <laughs> right? It's time. <laughs> a dear friend, one of many, many friends in this community and that I've known who's died in the AIDS epidemic, I spent time with. And if you've been with people who have HIV um, as they go in the last phases of the disease. He was this beautiful, wonderful young man. Um, he went from being you know, 38 or 39 or whatever he was in the course of a year to being old. His body started to get thin and emaciated and fall apart. And his father came to visit him, his father who never accepted him much because he was a gay man. His father didn't like him. But he came out to see him anyway, partly in the last weeks or months of his life. And his father was 80 years old and a little infirm and walking with a cane. And so was my friend. He walked with a cane. And they were like two old men that would walk together with their canes and sit on the park bench and talk to each other. And then he went from being a young man to an old man in a year. And then he went back to being a baby. And we would change his diapers. And he would lie there. And then he died. And we sat around with his body. I remember I put his glasses on to see what he would look like after he died. And touched his skin and talked to him. I loved him a lot. And he clearly wasn't in there. But it was some way of finishing something with him. Whenever you stop and feel and sense with awareness, you sense this stream of change. In a day or in a week of retreat, a thousand moods, 10,000 different mind moments, each different, one following another. There's nothing solid, even our own life or a tree. There's a seedling and a sapling and a big tree, and then it has acorns, as these oaks do. And they go in the ground, and there's a new seedling and sapling. Just like you were a child and your body was entirely different. You're always in change. The Buddha called our life. He wouldn't talk about people. He said, most of the time, you who are five processes of of um, physical experience, feelings, um, memory and recognition, thoughts, all the responses we have to the world, and consciousness. You who are a collection of these processes, know yourself, know life by paying attention. It all flows and it all changes. It breathes. Our spine, our body, our heart, the earth, the seasons, the stars. Now, out of misunderstanding or fear, some people think in spiritual practice the best thing to do is to have some pleasant experience and try to repeat it. So you sit in meditation or you have this great experience, whatever it is in the world, you know, that wonderful meal, that incredible sensual experience, and you think, great, this is what I've longed for, what I wanted, all I need is more of it. 
like all the time, right? So you try to have it again and again. And even in meditation it happens. You'll sit and you have some experience happen. And the next time you sit and you say, how am I going to get this back? Let's see. I had a sip of water first. I'll go get a sip of water. And I sat that way, yeah, on the cushion, just like this. Breathe this way and maybe it will come back. And so you try to repeat it over and over again, which is really the booby prize, right? Because even if you get it back, it just repeats over and over. After a while, it'll get boring. You know, what's your favorite food? Now imagine if you could eat your favorite food and only your favorite food for a few days at every meal. Hmm? So the point of spiritual practice in that way isn't to repeat something. There's nothing you're supposed to repeat. Or other people, out of not understanding or fear, think that the point of spiritual practice is to open and open, become expansive, loving, completely in touch with everything, to open as much as possible and stay there. (laughs) And just stay in that state and not change. (sighs) Light, open, so forth. But is it possible? Can you do it? And unfortunately, American culture supports this myth in many ways through speed and the kind of numbness that comes because we're so busy, we get out of touch with life. So there was this article in the Associated Press, Baby's Birth Surprises Mother and Father Both, right? A 38-year-old woman who had no idea she was pregnant gave birth to a boy after entering a hospital emergency room complaining of stomachache, doctors said yesterday. Suzanne Jones, or whatever her name was. She had... um, Mrs. Jones had gone from 120 to 165 pounds despite leading an active life. The day the baby was born, she'd walk three miles. Doctors at the hospital examined her. She didn't believe it. She said it couldn't be true, said the doctor, who 20 minutes later delivered the five-pound, 15-ounce baby. She took some convincing. I tried to explain that I could clearly see the baby's head. I had no idea I was pregnant, she said. Her husband was overjoyed. All right. So we get out of touch with life, right? In the West. Or we have these myths, you know, which we see on TV of perfect smiling people taken from the right camera angle in the best light, like Barbie. Or we have things made out of plastic, which are non-biodegradable, right? You know this story, this is a true story, that at one point, um, one of the beautification committees of the Los Angeles um, City Council decided that they needed to make something to help the, the freeways in Los Angeles become more beautiful, right? So they decided to plant in the middle, but they thought that, you know, with all that traffic and stuff, the plants just wouldn't make it. So instead, they got quite perfectly, they got a whole series of big, beautiful artificial plants, that is, plastic ones, you know, and they make pretty good ones these days. It's hard to tell when you look for a moment. And they planted them along one of the freeways. But after some weeks, with all those cars going by, and the plants, remember, are just at exhaust level, going with their exhaust, 
the toxic stuff coming out of all those cars, the plastic started to turn black and then soften and melt and drip. You know, you, can, you know what it does when it really decomposes. And it was so ugly, and after a while they had to pull it all up and plant real plants, which did a little bit better, right? So we keep busy, and there is, as Lewis Thomas said, the tremendous cultural sadness of not knowing ourselves and not resting in the truth of nature. We have lost that. And so there's this great sadness that comes because we don't live in the natural cycles of life with one another. And we think, okay, we'll just get it. We'll have the spiritual experience or we'll have the best house and the best job and whatever. And, and we'll get it and we'll have it and we'll be happy. But whether you do it in the world or whether you do it in your meditation, something that you're trying to get, there is no enlightened retirement. In any way, it would be terrible. You know, if you got some state and could hold it in spiritual life, it would be like buying flowers that are already opened. You don't do that when you go to the florist. You get the ones that are about to open, you know, or adopting an adult instead of a child. <laughs> The awakening of the heart of the Buddha, the awakening in spiritual life, is to find the deepest respect and compassion for what is, for what actually is in this life. And that's the cycles of the time we go inward and the times we extend outward and the times we weep and the times of joy. To really be present for the cycles of this gift of life. Now, some people say, that's fine, I'm okay with what is. I found some peace, I'm cool with it as it changes. But, you know, it's easy to be still superficial, kind of half asleep, moderately indifferent instead of really awake. So it doesn't mean just, oh, well, I'm, I'm okay with it. That's sort of the day between your manic and depressive episodes, right? <laughs> that's sort of that middle day episode of calm. So that's not the point of it. It's not just, okay, I feel good today, feel good dharma, or feel balanced. What about when the waves are really big? When someone that you love calls you and is dying, or the doctor calls you and says, you know, remember the results of the test that you took last week? Or what about many of the things that we see coming into our homes through the media? It's the incredible sickness you know, of the world that we participate in, from the wars to the things like poor O.J. Um, just insane to put that on television while it was happening, you know, to the kind of racism that is still this incredible wound in our society. Um, what about when we really let ourselves feel that? The teaching of the Buddha directs us to discover the deepest freedom underlying all of these things, the freedom of heart in the face of everything in life. And this is really why one enters spiritual practice, to find that in ourselves, that great freedom and compassion. 
And it's not to find some state to stop expansion and contraction. Anything that you find and hold on to is death, whatever it is, no matter how good it is. Enlightenment is not an experience. But to rest as the Buddha did in this body, in this moment, on this earth, and make our peace with all that arises and passes away. It's like Thomas Merton's description of these huge Buddhas in Sri Lanka. You go to the monastery of Palonarua, they're some of the largest Buddha statues carved out of the face of this marble cliff. And you walk barefoot across the grass, this kind of grassy temple, these big trees that have been there for centuries. And you come up, and Merton said, the faces of the Buddha with these beautiful, peaceful, knowing smiles. The peace not of emotional resignation, but a peace that had rejected nothing, that had pushed nothing away. Not of resignation, but the peace in the midst of all things. Now when we do come into the present, especially those of you sitting in the retreat this week, and we listen, often the first things we feel are the things we've run away from and feel the layering of the armor of our hearts, the, the unfinished business that we carry, the tensions in our body, the contractions, because we've been too busy to really listen and respect. And we need to touch all of that with respect and kindness. If you listen, you feel inside these paradoxical forces. One part of our heart just longs to be open, and another part is afraid. And they're both there, moving in us. Let it be simple. You don't have to be anywhere other than here to come back to the senses, to your own body sensations, to sounds and sights, smells and tastes, to the perceptions of this moment. And as you do, there will come all of the play of feelings, of joys and love that we don't take time to feel, of expectation and judgment, of grief and attachment, and sorrows that we don't let ourselves feel. To really rest in the present with things as they are, as they change, ask great kindness and a deep kind of forgiveness. The forgiveness that we never allowed because we couldn't accept this fact of change, the fact that everything changes. Somehow we have to feel this, to sense how alive this change is. Someone said that forgiveness is giving up all hope for a better past. Right? It was the way it was, and it may have been terrible or beautiful or probably both. But to actually live in the present requires a kind of forgiveness for a huge number of things, for how it is, rather than how we wished it to be. And as we learn to do that, as we practice mindfulness and awakening, 
and attend deeply, then we make enough space to allow the dance of life to show itself. Moment to moment, to be with what is. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, the teachings of Buddhism, all of Buddhism, can be summed up in three simple words. Not always so. Just that. Things are the way they are from moment to moment in change. So the poetry of Ed Brown. Any moment we could disappear, we could die. Everything would cease and still we honor each other and still we cook putting a thousand cherished dreams on the table to nourish one another, reassure those close and dear. In this act of cooking, I bid farewell. Always I insisted you alone were to blame. This last instant, my eyes open and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I withheld for so long. So as spiritual life develops a kind of maturity of heart, and as meditation deepens, the solidity of life, the idea that we know where it's going and how it's supposed to be, begins to dissolve. And in fact, the whole sense of ourself comes open. The body gets less solid. The moods change more, not less. You'll see. They're laughing, some of these people sitting up in the front. They've just been sitting a couple days. And what one can learn in this mystery is a way to trust, to open, to let go. The trust of the heart of a Buddha, that you can open to the sorrows of the world and the beauty of the world, both inextricable, that you really can be present. And it's a bit like learning to swim. You know when you're a child and you're trying to learn to swim and you keep paddling and whatever because you, you, know, you, you see other people floating but you don't have that bodily experience of it. And then there's some moment that happens where you finally let go of trying to not drown, whatever, and you realize that, the water, that you're buoyant in the water, that the water really will hold you. It's an amazing moment. It's wonderful. That is really part of the deepening of meditation. That ability to let go in the midst of all things. This kind of opening. And as one opens and allows the sense of, this small sense of self to open and all the things that we're part of to happen, something interesting happens kind of mystery occurs. Kala Rinpoche, the great Tibetan Lama, puts it this way. I'm fond of quoting him in this. He says, you live in appearance, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand it, you will see that you are nothing. That's this opening. You discover that there's nothing solid, that we're just part of the stream of energy of life, and there's nothing separate. When you understand it, you will sense that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. 
that is all. The mystery is, as we open to that which is greater than ourselves, the immediate and the intimate and the most personal contains everything. It is as Zen Master Dogen said, the whole moon and sky are reflected in a drop of dew in the grass. Or a poem from Zen Master Isa that I've read sometimes recently. On the death of his child, he writes, dew evaporates and all our world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. That it's all in change. And because it is so, it is as if it is your most precious garden for this moment and this day as it never was before and never will be again. In going to visit Mother Teresa several different times in Calcutta and work for a few days in the missionaries of charity and so forth, I remember her teaching as she has in She says it over and over in the films that we see of her. She says, people come here as if they're going to serve these poor people in Calcutta. We don't need that kind of help. We have enough social workers in India, whatever. They really come for themselves, for their own souls, their own hearts. And I let them learn how to serve here. That's what they come for. And then I send them home. I tell you, go home and love your neighbor as Jesus. Love the people in your community. Love your children and your parents. If you want to find the sacred, you don't have to go out of your neighborhood. So this is that mystery. That wisdom comes into form nowhere else but in this present moment. Nirvana is not somewhere else. The Buddha lived in Nirvana after his enlightenment. And in Nirvana, he wandered through India and he loved the forest. He talked about the beauty of the forests and the trees. And he spoke to people and he ate, slept and did all the human things that a human being does. And yet in the midst of all of that, he rested in Nirvana. When you enter a beautiful forest monastery, there's this sense of peace. You bow as you come in and there are the great trees and you sweep the paths and carry your bowl as these monks do. Follow the order, all these rules. The rules aren't actually difficult when you learn them. They're like a dance. They're like a tea ceremony that you do for the pleasure of expressing that freedom in action. Strictly speaking, said one Zen master, there are no enlightened beings. That's sort of a contradiction in term, an enlightened being. The enlightenment is only there when the being part isn't, right? There is, he said, strictly speaking, there is no enlightened beings. There is only enlightened activity. That is, in a moment, there's the expression of openness or respect or compassion or awareness that's enlightenment, or there isn't. 
And as we develop and mature and deepen in our practice, we learn this great art of letting go of self and other, discover this kind of trust, the ground of trust that is our Buddha nature, what my teacher Ajahn Chah called the, like the groundwater, wherever you dig, you come to this great pool of water that is your true being. You learn to rest in that. And from that, the breath breathes itself and joys and sorrows arise and all that we touch is alive. Again from Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, he says, the basic teaching of all of Buddhism is the teaching of transiency or change. The basic fact of all life. No one can deny this fact. Anyone deny this? And all the teachings are condensed within it wherever we go. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, Although it is true, it is difficult to accept, isn't it? Because we do not accept the truth of change, we suffer. So the cause of suffering is our non-acceptance of this truth, the way things are. Suffering and change are two sides of one coin. When we realize the everlasting truth that everything changes, and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. There are all kinds of beautiful parts to the spiritual journey and difficult parts to the spiritual journey because it's a mirror of our life. All of those are part of the cycles. The essence of it is this returning home, is this discovery, even for a moment, this remembering of this still point where we're not making plans and we're not remembering and we're not trying to change it or hope it, or maybe even our plans and hopes and stuff are there, but somewhere underneath all of that is this place of rest. Do you know how to make God laugh? Someone asked me tonight. Tell her your plans. (laughs) Ah, ain't it the truth, huh? T.S. Eliot calls it the still point of the turning world neither from nor towards. At the still point there the dance is, neither a rest nor movement. Do not call it fixed, where past and future are gathered, neither from or toward ascent nor decline. And except for this point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. The Four Quartets.
through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. Quick, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. The still point. So to come to a place that is a community of practice is to receive an invitation to come back to our true nature, our Buddha nature, to rest in that eternal presence of mindfulness and forgiveness and enormous compassion. Because from this place you see the movement and busyness of the world and all the longings and all the hopes and fears which make up life. And you see them and you know that the answer to all of them is just here. It's not in all those things. So tremendous compassion. So let's sit for a minute, if we could. And as you sit, be aware of the movement of your life, the beating of your heart, which is there as long as you live and no longer. The natural breathing, the breath breathes itself. The waves of thought and feelings that arise and pass. And let yourself rest in the eternal present, knowing that all things, birth and death, joy and sorrow, things loved and beloved and difficult for you, will all arise and pass in their season. Rest in that knowing. Then ask yourself a question. What is it that has changed 
in your own life that you haven't accepted. Just notice what is true that has changed. that asks your acceptance. And then again back, go back to feeling your own breath, body sensations, and resting in the midst of this change. It's important as we get ready to go that there not be a confusion of that still point with inactivity. The still point doesn't go anywhere. You can stand up and move and drive and pay your bills and care for your neighborhood and act as a responsible citizen and care for the things of the world that are precious and that are there right in front of you that asks for your response. But you can do it from that place that knows that all things change and respects that truth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.